Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. Today, we're chatting with Del Sigley. Del Sigley is the Lynn and Ray Niag Endowed Chair for Talent Development in the Niag School of Education at the University of Connecticut, where he was honored as a teaching fellow. Prior to earning his PhD, Dell worked as a gifted and talented coordinator in Montana. He is past president of the National Association of Gifted Children and has served on the board of directors of the Association for the Gifted. He is also past chair of the AERA Research on Giftedness, Creativity, and Talent SIG. He has been co-editor of the Journal of Advanced Academics and Gifted Child Quarterly. He writes a technology column for Gifted Child Today. Dell's research interests include web-based instruction, motivation of gifted students, and teacher bias in the identification of students for gifted programs. Along with Gary Davis and Sylvia Rim, he is an author of the popular textbook, Education of the Gifted and Talented, 6th and 7th edition. He is the director of the National Center for Research on Gifted Education, which replaces the former National Research Center on the Gifted and Talented. Dell, thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for asking me. It's exciting. Uh, it's exciting for me, and I think there's so many uh, who um, maybe don't know it, but uh, have a lot of your work influencing what they do. So uh, before we get into that, and one of the bigger topics being student achievement and underachievement, and, and perhaps the motivation of students along the way, how did you go from Montana to uh, being the uh, director of the National Center for Research on Gifted Education? I've uh, been pretty lucky in my life. I was a teacher of the gifted in Montana. I ran uh, a gifted and talented program uh, for fourth through eighth graders in a little town called Glendive, Montana, uh, very rural. And um, when I got that job, I actually didn't have any experience in gifted ed. Uh, there was a shortage of math teachers and I happened to be qualified to teach mathematics up through grade nine. And uh, this school district had a halftime math teacher position and a halftime position starting a gifted and talented program over in the elementary uh, district. And so they uh, knew they weren't gonna be able to get a halftime math teacher when there's a shortage of math teachers. And I was qualified, so they hired for that for me. And because I had done well in college, I didn't go to college till I was 26. I'd worked as a photographer for a number of years. So my grades were really very good in college. And they said, oh, this guy's got a high GPA. He can teach the gifted program as well, which is not necessarily true. So I needed to hit the ground running, learning something about gifted education. So that summer before I started uh, teaching, I went looking for classes in gifted ed around the country. and. Uh, I happened to stumble upon something called Confertute at the University of Connecticut. And uh, I attended Confertute and I learned just so much about gifted education at Confertute that it really sold me on uh, the model and uh, also just gave me a great start in becoming a gifted and talented coordinator. So I, I worked for eight years in Montana as a gifted and talented coordinator. And I had a connection with Confertute during that time. And uh, in about the eighth year there, uh, Sally Reese and Joe Renzulli were speaking at the Montana Gifted Conference and they had just received uh, word that they were awarded the National Research Center for the first time. 
and they were looking for grad students who could help with the work and do that research. And my good friend, Jan Lapine, who had earned her uh, master's degree in the three summers program here at UConn, introduced me to Joe and Sally. And uh, they offered both Jan and myself assistantships for PhD program. And so, wow, I was here and in the middle of it. And so being involved in that research was really great. I earned my PhD. I was a Western boy. I wanted to get back to the West and as close as to Montana as I could get was Idaho and I ended up at Boise State University. And I was there for four years. Uh, had a great time there, started EduFest, which is a gifted and talented conference there in Idaho. And then I met my wife uh, who was interested in a PhD program and I'd recommended UConn. And so she became a student here at UConn and we ended up getting married. And so we need, it would have been kind of nice to live in the same state as my wife. And so I was fortunate that UConn had an opening and I became a professor here. And so I've been here ever since. Well, so I guess you, I guess you kind of like it there. You keep believing in coming back and being a part of it and, and, and finding family there. And, um, and speaking, speaking of Confertute, uh, I, I would love to just explore that. A lot of teachers, I feel like, are looking for great places for um, research-based uh, professional learning. And I, I'm not sure if there's a better experience, much less the research base uh, than Confertute. And obviously it's had a huge impact on your life. Yeah. Uh, Confertute runs for about a week, uh, usually starts Sunday night and ends uh, Friday about noon so people can catch their flights home. It's internationally known. We have between five and 800 educators from all over the world come. We like to call it a summer camp for teachers. Uh, we take good care of you. We give you all the ice cream you want to eat. Uh, and we try to have a lot of fun activities. But uh, the core of Confortude actually is that we have the top people in various areas of gifted education presenting and you, you eat with them. We don't, have, we don't separate the speakers from the participants. Everybody's just part of this event. And uh, like you said, it's a, we're presenting research-based things on the school-wide enrichment model, but we also feature things on creativity, motivation, uh, critical thinking, differentiation. So we have a wide variety of different topics and you, you get some real in-depth training on that. And uh, people come out of there just uh, totally motivated to get back in the trenches and uh, go to work. And uh, a lot of the speakers are actually practicing professionals. Uh, so you're learning from your colleagues at the same time. Yeah, it's a great experience. I highly recommend it and uh, had a huge impact on me. And and so knowing that UConn is this place where people across the world come to learn about gifted education, I wonder for our audience out there uh, of Texas educators and parents, uh, what's the perception of, of Texas and, and uh, how has that come across to you of uh, what we're doing in terms of gifted education or what comes to mind? Well, Texas is a big time player in gifted education. And uh... And your your state association is is you know well known. Your gifted conference is probably uh, larger than the national gifted conference, uh, and so uh, you're just doing so many innovative things within your association. There, this podcast being one of them, but you, you know all the professional development opportunities and then. and gifted education within the state of it, uh, Texas itself. It, it's one of the more uh, predominant states known for for what they're doing in gifted education so you guys should be very proud of what you've been doing yeah we're, we're excited and, and there's so many i feel like unique issues that we run across within gifted education especially here in the state of texas and why i'm so glad to have you here to talk about 
gifted underachievement. And, and I'd love for you to kind of, kind of <clears throat> set the stage a little bit before that. Cause could someone perhaps argue that gifted underachievement, maybe that's a, it's an oxymoron, you know, uh, if they're underachieving, then perhaps they're not gifted or, or what, well, what's kind of your introdu- introductory thoughts on gifted underachievement and, and, and maybe why that happens? Well, along with my wife, Betsy McCouch, uh, we've developed the achievement orientation model. Uh, and uh, when we started working on the area of underachievement, uh, we have a good friend, Dave Kenny, who's a well-known psychologist. And Dave asked Betsy one day, well, what are you working on? And we said, oh, we're working on underachievement. And he said, oh, you're working on achievement. And Betsy said, no, we're working on underachievement. And he said, well, isn't underachievement just kind of the other end of the spectrum of achievement? And then, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason that he once was the third most cited psychologist in the world. Uh, so, uh, so we started taking a little different perspective and started looking at, well, why do people achieve? You know, what are the factors that are, what are the beliefs that an individual holds that causes them to want to do well at something or to engage in something? And that's how we ended up developing the achievement orientation model. And and in that model, the first thing that needs to exist really is uh, before anybody tries something, they have to believe that they have the skills to do it. And Albert Bandura uh, coined the term self-efficacy for that. And that is this confidence in your ability to do something. And self-efficacy is a very specific thing. So you could be highly efficacious at math, but not highly efficacious at writing or language arts. Uh, so it isn't, so it differs from academic self-concept in, in that the self-efficacy is your perception of the skills that you have to do something. And so before you ever try anything, you have to believe you can do it. And so before ever you, you ever try to go snow skiing, you know, if you grew up in Texas where there's probably not a lot of snow, uh, or in my case, I grew up on the plains of Montana where there weren't any mountains on our side of the state. Uh, you know, I never believed I could ski. So I have opportunities. I didn't try it, you know? So, uh, so you have to have this, this self-efficacy and, and, you know, that self-efficacy comes from the past performances that we've had. So if you've been successful at something in the past, you believe you're going to be successful at it in the future, but it also works the other way. If you failed at it in the past, then you, you're, you're going to believe you're going to fail at it in the future. So, so the kids that maybe had trouble learning their math concepts, maybe their multiplication tables, their addition facts, they might be great little mathematicians actually and have a mathematical mind, but because they had that early experience of, of not being good at arithmetic, which is not the same as mathematics, uh, they've convinced themselves they're not good at math. And, and, and so consequently, you know, it just doesn't happen. They, they don't engage in math. So uh, you need that self-efficacy. It also comes from uh, uh, seeing other people be successful. And uh, the su- success of another person is, is dependent on how well you relate to that person. So if you perceive yourself as being like someone, then uh, when that person's successful, you think you can be successful also. And a lot of people think that gifted kids are, you know, these great role models for other kids in the classroom. But in fact, uh, that's not always the case because uh, when a gifted kid is successful in the classroom and someone who's not been identified as a gifted kid sees them be successful, they say, well, that's easy for them. They're smart, you know, and it, it builds nothing. It does nothing for, for the other kid's confidence. So, uh, so the, 
the self-efficacy can come from our own performances, but it also can come from seeing the performances of others. And it also comes from um, uh, verbal persuasion, people telling you that you can be successful now. Teachers, uh, we, we often try to use that one, you know, the pep talk and be inspirational. Uh, that, well, that has some impact. It, it's much weaker than actually having an opportunity to show kids that they are successful and, and can be successful. So you got to have this self-efficacy. You got to believe that you, you could do this if you tried. Uh, and for most underachievers, that, that is a big factor. That's a big roadblock. Uh, but our work has shown that it's not necessarily the biggest factor for students who have been identified as gifted and are underachieving. Because this, the second factor is this idea that it has to be meaningful for you. you know, we call it task valuation. Sometimes we call it meaningful. The task has to be valued. So you can believe that you're good at math, that you have the skills to do math, but if you don't think math is important for you, you're not going to engage. And that's the one that often pulls down kids who have been identified as gifted. Because, because they've been, partly because when being identified as gifted, they tend to think that they have those skills, but they don't find that the curriculum is necessarily meaningful to, to them. Uh, and so uh, that is the one, if we're tr trying to turn around underachievement, that is probably your best bet to try to address is how can I make this material meaningful for the, for the student or how can uh, I show the student that this is something important for them, you know? And so one of the keys is uh, playing off student interests. Uh, uh, there's a very strong relationship between interest and doing well at something. Uh, we have quite a bit of data on that. Uh, we don't know if because you're interested, you do well, or you do well because you're interested. Uh, but that really doesn't matter because there's this, there's this connection between the two. And so if you as a teacher can find out what a student's interested in, and if you can show that student how this interest can tie into what you're teaching, or if you can use the student's interest and build it into whatever you're teaching, uh, you can go a long ways towards motivating that student. My son happens to be someone who likes to draw. He loves to animate. And so if there's a science project on molecules or something, and he could have an opportunity to do an animation showing how all these molecules work, he's going to learn so much more about molecules than if he didn't have that opportunity, if he had to write a report about molecules. And, and he will spend way more time on that animation than's probably necessary. And you might think, well, that's a waste of time to do all this animation. But in fact, that will motivate him and he'll spend more time learning about molecules also in the, in, at the same time. So anytime we can get uh, students' interests tied into projects, that's really important. And that's why in like in the school-wide enrichment model, we, we do a lot of interest surveys. Uh, we have the enrichment clusters, which are based on students attending things that interest them and teachers leading those on topics that interest the teachers because interest is important to teachers as well. That's why we have the the type threes based on student interest. Uh, so interest is a, is a key factor. Other factors that help make things meaningful are kids' visions of the future. It's gonna sound crazy, but uh, if somebody wants to be an engineer, they're probably gonna be more interested in math and they're probably gonna pay more attention and engage more in mathematics if, than if they didn't. Uh, um, there's a quote by Nietzsche and I'll probably blow it, but 
he says the future influences the present more than the past. And as teachers, we often worry about the baggage that kids are bringing to school with them. And oh, this kid's got you know a rough home life, or this kid didn't do so well in first, second grade, or this kid's had this reading issue, and so you know kids you know doomed or sabotaged for the moment. Uh, but it, in fact, it's this child's perception of what's ahead for him or her that really influences the way he acts or she acts every day. And if I don't think there's much of a future for me, if I don't think I have a chance to go to college because there's no money being saved, or I don't know how to get financial aid to go to college or a scholarship, then I'm not going to engage and prepare for that. So kids' visions of their future are really important. And as educators and as parents, that's, a, that's an area we can really do some things because a lot of kids just have been told that they don't have a very good future or you know, they've watched people around them whose futures haven't been that great. And so they, they sell themselves short. And so as an educator, that's just a really important thing to do is help kids see that there are potential possibilities out there. There are possibilities in their future. Uh, so that's another way that you can make things uh, meaningful. You can play off their interests. Uh, you can try to show them how their future is different or can be different if they learned this stuff. Uh, and sometimes we just bribe them with rewards, you know, and rewards are really controversial. Uh, but I get a paycheck. Now, I probably, I don't know if I'd come to work with it without it or not, but I certainly enjoy getting it. And, uh, and so, well, we know that rewards sometimes uh, can actually have negative effects if a student's intrinsically motivated to do something. Uh, that per putting in a reward system for doing something they already like to do can be really detrimental and sometimes can actually sidetrack that intrinsic motivation and they'll start focusing on the reward and, and possibly even lose that intrinsic motivation. So, oh, wow. so kids are intrinsically motivated to do stuff. Uh, the last thing you'd want to do is put a reward system, but if you can't get a kid off the mark and there's no intrinsic motivation, a little reward like a coupon for a free homework, if you do your homework, uh, might be enough to get that homework assignment done. And uh, so you have to be really careful with the rewards though, and you want to wean them off them as soon as you can. Uh, but, you know, amazing working with underachievers. Kids who aren't doing homework will do homework so they can get a coupon not to do homework. <laughs> but they weren't, yeah, but they weren't doing homework anyway. So, you know, <laughs> right. but it works somehow. So that's that second component of the model. Uh, you got to have, that self-efficacy, you got to have believe that you can do it. Secondly, you have to think this is meaningful. You have to value the goal of it. And then the third component of our model is that you, I call it environmental perceptions. You have to believe that the environment is going to support your success. You have to believe that this teacher, for example, can teach you math. So I can have all the confidence in the world in my math ability, and I can think math is really important, but I don't think you know how to teach me math. Uh, or maybe you don't think your, your parents would support it. Uh, and so this environmental perception are all these things that you believe you're in a situation that's going to support you being successful and that they're going to value you being successful. Uh, and when people have these three beliefs, when they believe they have the skills to do it, when they think they, that it's important to do, and when they think they're in a supportive environment, they tend to engage, self-regulate, and get the job done. A lot of people want to teach underachievers uh, 
study skills, because sometimes underachievers do lack study skills. But our work has shown uh, you can teach all the study skills you want, but if if this kid doesn't think this is important to do and doesn't think he can do it or she can do it, it's not going to happen. That's not to say that teaching those study skills isn't a good idea, but it's not enough to get them off the mark often. They will need those study skills, and many uh, very bright kids can develop those study skills on their own, but it's certainly not a bad idea to teach them, but to have that as a sole focus in trying to reverse underachievement is not that successful. Uh, So uh, that's the work we've been doing. we were really heavy into it for quite a while. And then we we got the net and I took over directorship of the national center for research on gifted education. We've been kind of looking at some of the uh, underserved population identification stuff, but my wife and I are really anxious to get back into uh, our work on motivation and underachievement. And and I think there's something really compelling about it of just knowing, um, especially in the pressure cooker, sometimes education can be for outcomes, especially achievement outcomes of students uh, to really address this. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, um, what do teach when teachers hear this, when they hear this message of man, you know, the importance of self-efficacy, the importance of having students in a right, uh, environment and per- precepts of their environment and to, um, and to really value the work. Do you, do you find that teachers are able to move into that space or do you find that there's a struggle, even though we kind of know, uh, what makes, uh, successful students successful? I think they they tend to like the model and it makes sense to them, you know, and it, it's gained some popularity around the world, actually, and it's, it's gained some popularity in, in Europe and ECHA, which is the European Council for High Ability, uh, they offer some uh, certification programs and they actually use the achievement orientation model as, as, as one of the modules they, they do in that program. So I think teachers... It makes sense. And when you think about yourself and whether you engage or not. Absolutely. But making those modifications uh, for the kids sometimes can be difficult. And, uh, you know, they'll say, okay, I'm going to find out what the kid's interested in. They walk up to, you know, they walk up to the kids, what are you interested in? And the kid will say, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And they go, oh, great. He just told me I have to base all this on what this kid's interested in. And that's what I get. And, and underachievers often will tell you that, you know, so some of them really know what they're interested in, others don't. So uh, figuring out the interest and, in, in, you know, what what's going to cause them to bite uh, can sometimes be problematic. If you have, um, and I'm not here to promote the school-wide enrichment program necessarily, but uh, if you do, you know, follow that model, that's what the type ones are all about is providing a wide variety of different experiences, just exposing kids to lots of things. And the purpose of that is that these are meant to be hooks to figure out what this kid's really interested in. And then I can use that hook to get that kid to do a type three, if you're in that model, or I can use that hook and tie what this kid's interested in, into what I'm teaching. And and so uh, when kids can't share with you their interests, then Exposing them to a wide variety of things, sometimes an interest will, will surface. But uh, a lot of kids do know what they're interested in. My kid, you know, for example, knows what he's interested in. And, and so if you talk to them a little bit, you'll find out what they like to do. Uh, but it requires a little work to make that little modification to tie the interest. But the interest could be tied, uh, you know, you 
you don't necessarily have to change your content because uh, in the example I gave you, the interest is tied to the product that's produced, you know? Right. And, and so there, you know, you can stay right with your standard or what, you know, that you're expected to teach uh, and uh, just make a modification in, in the product. Uh, and likewise, you know, you know, you, you know, in differentiation, you have those three things, content, product, and process. Those are the three things you're dealing with. And so, Interest can change the way the product is. The interest can also change the process. You know, maybe you'd rather listen to a tape about it than read about it, you know, or whatever, and with an underachiever. And uh, at times you can embed the interest into the content as well. Uh, uh, but I, I think that is probably the hardest part is, is, is figuring out how to tie this interest in. And you've got a big class and you got 30, 40 kids there. And how am I going to do that? But uh, some of them will need it more than others, obviously. Most of the success with underachievement reversal is a combination of some sort of modification to the instructional environment and also some counseling, you know, to be honest, uh, talking about what, how they see their future and, and also building up their confidence of, uh, about their skills. You know, people have done work on gifted underachievers and um, Kate Snyder and, and her former advisor have taken some of the stuff we've used and kind of packaged it really well and added some new stuff and some twists. And, and they talk about that there are these multiple pathways to underachievement. And, and for some gifted kids, uh, they get, they really like this gifted label and it becomes part of their identity and it, and in some sense, it becomes a dangerous identity because when uh, when the work starts to get difficult, uh, they're worried that maybe there was a mistake. You know, they could have imposter syndrome, for example. I'm really not gifted. Uh, they made a mistake because you know school is easy for second, third grade to get to fourth grade. It's hard, uh, and uh, I'm gifted. It should be easy because kids have this silly idea that if you're smart, you don't have to work hard. And as a result of that, there will be kids who just shut down and you'd say well you know that that's failure you know but but uh, you know if you want to keep your gifted label if you don't do the assignment uh so say a difficult assignment comes up and you're not sure you can get an a on it and and so i just don't do it i don't hand it in and you get an f you say well, well but i'm still gifted because i didn't hand it in you know so you can't say that i did poorly on it or they may procrastinate and uh, and just uh, wait till the last minute and do it. And then you can say, hey, that wasn't my best work. You know, I did it last night. I had to rush through it. So sometimes they'll do stuff to protect that gifted label because they like that gifted label. They want to keep that gifted label. And uh, not performing keeps their gifted label still because performing poorly would take it away maybe. Uh, wow. So there's so something... There's something to a, a gifted student, even taking the label or the expectations around it and gaming the system to where they still meet the threshold of it in their mind of like, see, I'm so gifted. I worked around it. There's something to that. Yeah. And you know, it's scary because it's not getting them anywhere, but they're, they're yeah. getting to keep it. Uh, and it's because they value that, that label so much. And then there are other kids that school's just been really easy. And so they just come to expect school not to be not to learn anything, you know, it's just easy and they, and they fail to value it. 
and they fail to fail also to build this value of that you work and you achieve something, you know. And and for them, the problem was that they weren't challenged early enough. So it has nothing to do with their gifted label. It's just this failure to academically challenge them at an early age. Uh, and and so there are multiple ways that very bright kids could end up underachieving. And then for others, you know, they just they just have this one passion and they want to live that passion and and anything outside they don't want to do it. That's a tough one because you know, uh, Jean Peterson used to say, well. As long as you're doing something, she wouldn't call somebody an underachiever. You know, if you've got a passion and you're doing podcasts for tag, you know, uh, or whatever it is, um, that's great. And we don't care that you have to, you're doing these other things because you, <clears throat> you have this passion for this one thing. And so Jean would say, be careful about labeling somebody as gifted, uh, I'm sorry, as under as an underachiever. Uh, if just because they have a passion in one area and they don't want to do what we want them to do in a different area, you know, that, that passion can take them a long ways. However, not doing well in school can uh, have some negative consequences and limit some opportunities in the future. So that's why it, it's still very important for, um, for us to try to get kids engaged in school. And I'm just going to say something probably controversial. So to play the school game, you know, and I, yeah. I used to work with my kids and some weren't that interested. I said, this is a game and you can win at this game. So let's yeah. figure out how to make you a player here. And it's like, right. and so uh, because it creates all these opportunities that you just wouldn't get otherwise. It also seems like you're just being informed by what you know about your kids in that scenario to help build that motivation a little bit. And, and maybe that's just speaking to their strengths to break something down and to move forward in a lane that makes sense to them. That's encouraging for them. Right. Um, and I feel there's so much of this conversation that's about perception, perception of yourself, perception of your environment, perception of your teachers. It kind of connects me back to another piece of work that you have the, the gifted children's bill of, uh, bill of rights. That's, that's a document I see all, all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, is that connected there of helping, uh, helping people understand and, and perceive perhaps what a, what a gifted child looks like and the expectations around them. Yeah. The gifted kids bill of rights was uh, actually inspired by Paul Torrance did this manifesto a number of years ago. And uh, when I became president of NAGC, one of the things back then the president of NAGC did was, um, excuse me a second. <coughs> Uh, had a had an article in every um, parenting high potential issue. It was like a message from the president. And you see, so I was just really wondering, what am I going to do for that first one? And <laughs> and I and then I thought about Paul Torrance in his manifesto, and so I decided to go with the Gifted Children's Bill of Rights, and uh, and it, and actually it was really nice because Joel McEn McIntyre. Macintosh, yeah. I have a Joel McIntyre and a Joel McIntosh in my life. Um, so Joel, uh, who owned Proof Rock Press at the time, printed up big posters and gave them away at the NAGC conference that year that I, I became president. Uh, but yeah, it is all about that this kid has some rights and this kid has a right not to be good at everything. Uh, you know, that's one of them. This kid has a right uh, to learn something new every day. And that's a, kind of a Matra, my wife is often talked about, you know, and you don't sacrifice that right to learn something new every day. 
just because you're gifted, just like you don't sacrifice it because you have some special learning needs. Uh, so that right to learn something new every day. And, you know, we often hear people complaining, you know, that um, this gifted kid says this child may not have any friends his own age, but has lots of older friends or younger friends. So you have a right to have older and younger friends because uh, we often see that as a characteristic um, you have a right to have a passion and pursue it. Uh, and you have a right not to be gifted at everything because uh, a lot of times parents uh, think, you know, if I have this gifted child, they have to excel at everything. And that's that, that's not the case. So that, that gifted bill of rights was actually written for from a parenting perspective for parents. Uh, but I think it has good messages for, for teachers as well. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, again, I wonder, you know, if you're a parent listening to this podcast and you have a student that's maybe not achieving to what at least you perceive their potential to be, um, does something like that Bill of Rights or your achievement orientation model, is there something about that that's just a commitment to knowing your student and maybe taking the time to do that before just saying, hey, you have to perform or, hey, you have to meet this goal. Is it, 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 I think it, at some level, it's an encouragement or a clarity of what to look for. Right. Yeah, yeah that's well stated. Uh, you should write up a gifted bill of rights. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, it's true. Understanding and talking to your, your son or daughter or as a teacher, talking to the student, what's important to them and, and, and see if you can understand why this behavior is happening. There, there could be a very good reason for it, you know? Uh, you know, I had a kid whose achievement, uh, he was a fourth grader and his achievement was falling apart. He was, he was getting in fights on the playground and the principal came to me and said, you need to have a talk with that kid, you know? And uh, so I talked to him and, uh, you know, I said, hey, what's going on here? And he said, Mr. Sigley, I can't get A's. And I said, what? He said, my friends are gonna tease me if I get A's. I can't have A's. Uh, you're going, what? You know, and he came from a pretty rough side of town. And uh, emotionally, his group, he just did not want to know people to know that he was smart, you know. And I said, you want to go to college? Yeah. I said, well, we got to have good grades. So find some way. Maybe don't show your report card to your kids or your friends or tell them you got a lower grade. I mean, you know, not that I'd recommend this, but tell them you got a lower grade than you really did. Or make sure the teacher doesn't draw attention to you, you know? And so we got him turned around, you know, and he starts achieving again. But, you know, that was a, kind of a silly reason. But it was that this environment he lived in did not support wow. academic excellence. And he did not want to be known for it. Uh, so uh, that's an unusual case. But, uh, yeah, sitting down and finding out what's important to them and and, and how they see their future is is, uh, is is the ticket. I do think there's a very important conversation around that too of, um, you know, sometimes there are students who feel like they have to choose between, you know, their uh, their friends perhaps or a group they want to be a part of or and, and then also um, perhaps a group that's more uh, uh, of a cluster of, of like-minded uh, or in terms of ability or potential students. And that's got to be a tough situation for a student to walk through a lot, especially when you're young. And that's really important to you to, to be with your, your perceived friends. Yeah, you're right on. And the research supports that. There, there's uh, some research that shows that the grades of kids with their peer group uh, 
they're more similar at the end of an academic year than at the start. So, wow. Uh, we don't know if the achievers all kind of find each other and the underachievers find each other throughout the year, or if you just kind of become like your friends and you, you know, if you're around an achieving group, you, you start achieving also. But when we look at when, and it's not work that I've done, but when these researchers looked at the grades, who looked at these different friendship groups at the start of the year and what kind of grades they were getting, and then looked at friendship groups at the end of the year and what kind of grades, the grades were much more similar at the end of the year. So peers do have a big impact. And of course, you got to be very careful as the parents say, I don't want you playing with that kid because he's not getting good grades and he's a bad influence on you. And, you know, that stuff can really backfire. But anytime you can get your kids to be associating with other kids who are motivated and achieving, you know, we're not trying to sabotage their other friends, but if you can expose them to, to people who are motivating that, that second thing on the self-efficacy, the vicarious experience of seeing other people be successful, uh, hanging around successful people, you tend to, you know, also be successful yourself and be inspired. Uh, I didn't go to, I said, I worked as a photographer, you know, for eight years. I don't know if I said eight years, but it was eight years before I went to college. And, and actually when I graduated from high school, I didn't think I was smart enough to go to college. But I had photography skills. And so I, you know, I had that self-efficacy for photography. So I was able to go right into working professionally as a photographer. And, I, and then I worked eight years. And the last four of those was at a little newspaper as a photojournalist. And in a little newspaper, you do a little of everything. But my primary responsibility was, you know, doing the pictures and screening them. And the owner of the newspaper actually was a former college dean who had decided to raise a family in a small town. And so gave up being a college dean to be this editor of this little newspaper. And uh, he ran it like the New York Times in the middle of rural Montana. But he, uh, he always asked why I never went to college. And I just said, well, I didn't think I was smart enough. And he said, well, of course you are. But that wasn't enough to get me to go to college, actually. Well, there were a number of factors uh, that influenced that, including some eye issues. But uh, the factor was that working next to this man and just seeing him put forth effort and have benefits from it. Uh, my father had a motto. I was looking for a job when I found this one. And he was a very bright man who'd never had any uh, opportunities for a lot of education. He only made it to eighth grade. And then he went to work uh, and very talented and obviously a gifted man. Uh, and he was the greatest father in the world. He's warm, friendly, but he, as soon as he mastered doing a job, he quit because what, what's the point? I figured out how to do that. One. Now I'll go do this. So he was a electrician, a butcher, a bus driver, a mail carrier, a counselor for, at a reformatory for boys, uh, ran a little jewelry shop, uh, did, did recycling and junk, you know, he, he did it all great dad I wouldn't trade him for anything but what he didn't model for me was if you work hard and stick with something there are these goodies that happen and then but working next to this editor at this paper for four years I started thinking hmm why not go to college and see what happens you know and so I headed off to college at 26 you know which is later than most and I'm still at college now <laughs> yeah I never quit but point is I had that role model. My dad was a great role model for how to be a good father, you know, and a sensitive human being. Uh, this other man was a role model for me on uh, about work ethic and discipline and, 
and it made all the difference in my life. So uh, your kids need lots of role models. And as Sylvia Rim would say that you need role models with, that you identify with with regard to gender. So if you identify as a male, you probably need a male role model in your life. And that male role model needs to exhibit to you or show to you that putting forth effort can can result in good things happening and can be rewarding. Uh, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be dad. It could be a Cub Scout leader or a Boy Scout leader or a coach, or, but, but you need someone in your life to show, to demonstrate that to you and, and model it for you. So it's, it's fascinating that you had a, apparently a dad with multi-potentiality and you know, gifts in all sorts of areas there. And I had an underachieving dad, you know, in, in the sense, if you wanted to go with academics or holding a, a steady job, but he, he always worked, but it was just bouncing all over the place, you know? Huh? Right. So that kind of goes back to that, what you were saying in, originally of uh, achievement. Uh, there's a whole lot of achievement. There are different skills for achievement as opposed to underachievement. And, right. Wow. That's fascinating. So, okay. So as we kind of, you know, start to wind this down a little bit, if, if we've got a parent or a teacher out there who is really concerned about, you know, Hey, uh, I really want to improve the motivation in my kids. Is there a starting point or a starting resource that you would say, Hey, the, and, and you discussed some best practices already, but where would you say for them to get started to kind of tap into this? You know, one of the th- things they might look at are the survival guides at Judy Galbraith uh, at Free Spirit Press. And I think Jim DeLisle's worked on those as well. They're these gifted kids survival guides. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in there uh, to help kids actually understand their giftedness better. And, and, uh, you know, when I I talk to parents a lot, I, I talk to them to think about giftedness sort of as a Lego set. Uh, and everybody has a different size Lego set. And some of us have the hundred dollar set with lots of pieces. <laughs> and some of us have a dollar 99 set and not too much in it, but uh, we all have these Legos and, and those are some of our natural gifts and talents that we've been given. Uh, but really what really matters is what you build out of that Lego set, what you make out of it. And, you know, and I tell this to kids, you know, you might you you've been lucky enough to have this super Lego set. What are you going to do with it? Uh, you know, and 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 as teachers, you'll see that you'll have a kid with not quite as much ability, uh, natural talent, and they just run in circles around everybody else. You know, so they have a smaller Lego set, but they use their creativity and their task commitment, and they they just do some great things with it, and so. I think one of the keys uh, from a parent perspective is talking, if you have gifted children or children who've been identified as gifted, is talking with them about their giftedness. I think that's one of the most important things in the world. And, you know, when I started in the field, we never even talked about it with the kids. Uh, We labeled our program STEP because we didn't even want to call it a gifted program because that would give them a big head, you know. And so nobody really talked about it. And I think that was a big mistake. It was kind of interesting. One of the students said to me when they were seniors, uh, it happened at this high school in our district that the top 10% sat in the front row for graduation. And then she said, you know, Mr. Sigley, it's really weird. All the stepkids were sitting in the front row at graduation. Well, yeah, they should have been. I mean, <laughs> we had identified them in fourth grade as having all this talent. And if I was doing a good job, 
they're going to be the top, you know, the top 10%. But it had never occurred to her because <laughs> we did such a great job of concealing what this program was about, which is, you know, I'm not recommending that at all. Uh, so the point is, I think we need to talk with kids about their giftedness, that it's not something that just happened to them. Uh, they've been lucky enough to inherit a certain brain that may process things more quickly, may be able to handle more information uh, in a single thought, uh, you know, but ultimately it's them taking that and doing something with it. And so they develop their talents and, and giftedness is all about developing your talents. And so I often use the Lego analogy and say, you know, we all have slightly different Lego sets and who's going to build kind of the coolest thing out of these Legos. And we can all build cool things out of these Legos. We don't have to compete in that sense, but I want them to understand they have something to do with developing their talent, developing their giftedness, and that there's no limit to, to doing that. And that making mis the other thing is modeling, mis modeling with your kids that mistakes are not detrimental. You know, it's okay. You know, we often try to cover up all our mistakes, but sharing your own mistakes with your kids and showing how you recover from them. That's great. Uh, uh, someone said that uh, I'm going to blow this one too, but you know, that, mistakes are portals to discovery. Uh, and, and, you know, you know, you make a mistake, you're never going to forget that. And it's solid. And yet kids are trying to play it so safe and not make mistakes. And that's because sometimes the risks are too high. If the risks are high, you, you don't, you don't take chances, you know, and, and by not taking chances, you limit your learning. And so that's something teachers and parents both have to do is make sure that the risks aren't so high. Yeah. so that you're free to make those mistakes. Because when you make that mistake, you're never going to forget that. And so that's the way we really learn is by making mistakes. So that's another thing you can do as a parent is, is share mistakes you've made and how you overcame them and let them watch, you know, they watch you. Uh, recently, I had some surgery and I was sort of sidelined for a little while. And uh, so there's some tasks that my kids had to do. And I'm a father a little late in life. So, you know, I have a uh, soon to be sophomore and an eighth grader. And my sophomore, I started explaining something I needed to do and started to explain how to do it. And she says, well, I know how to do that. And I said, how do you know how to do that? She said, I've been watching you do it. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they're watching yeah. us. You know, they're watching you, parent. And the way you handle mistakes uh, is really important. And the, the way you show when you have a challenging thing, how you tackle it and aren't afraid of it, all those things build up and, and, and help. And the way you talk about your job, you know, if you're talking about, Oh, I hate my job and my boss doesn't appreciate me and oh, I don't like to go to work and this is just a waste of time. <laughs> they talk right. about school that way. So uh, we are their models as parents. And so we need to model that success orientation. You know, It seems that uh, there's just seems obvious connections there to me to self-efficacy of, of perhaps we're building within these students how they perceive their own uh, abilities to get through things and, and, and connecting it back to what you were saying earlier too of, of modeling mistake making or, or or responding to failure if we if we can't build efficacy to fight through that ourselves i can only imagine what um environment we're, we're creating around our students who are who are trying to do that as well totally right Wow. Okay. So that this has been a great conversation. I think a huge encouragement and uh, I've just got one more thing. I try to wrap up our conversations with a uh, fast five quick questions here. Um, now, some of them are pretty broad, broad questions, but hopefully five quick questions here. 
as we start to wrap this up uh, to leave us convicted to learn more about varied dimensions of giftedness. So are you ready? We got five. Yeah, the answer to all of them is 13, by the way. (laughs) Man, this guy is, he is a gifted educator. I like it. Yeah. California. All righty. So like I said, even though these questions are broad, just kind of quick responses of what may be a knee-jerk response here, but uh, what are some areas where gifted education falls short? Uh, the obvious one is underserved populations uh, who are missing a lot of talent out there. And uh, because we're not identifying it, it's not getting developed. And so we're, a lot, we're leaving a lot of good fruit on the vine, I guess you might say. Uh, uh, we're not harvesting it. Uh, and so we have to do a better job of spotting talent and providing services for it. Wow. I'm with you there. That's very convicting. Um, question number two, who has inspired you? I know that's a huge and broad question, but I, I found that if we, I've walked away so encouraged uh, by the different people we've interviewed of, of who they've kind of look, look up to, again, maybe to build that own self-perception there. I have been so fortunate that the field of gifted education has let me play in their sandbox, you know, and I have been so lucky to, to basically know all the greats and some who have now passed on. Uh, And so, you know, to say one, if I have to pick one, it's going to be Joe Renzulli because of this emphasis on that education should be enjoyable and uh, that interest is, the, is a big factor in people being motivated. And you know, his work has always been based on interest, but you know, his partner, Sally Reese, has been a real inspiration for me because she's, uh, she's very practical and you know, uh, Joe's practical too, but Sally can take Joe's work and make it very applicable to a parent or a teacher. So you know, both of them have been, uh, you know, here at UConn, Gene Gubbins was very influential and, and helpful for me. Uh, and, and so and my friend, Jan Lapine, got me the PhD into the PhD program in a sense because she introduced me to Joan Sally. So she's been a real inspiration to me. I followed Joyce Van Tassel Baska as president of NAGC. Nobody wants to follow Joyce Van Tassel Baska. My gosh, the woman is so productive. But I learned a lot about leadership and from Joyce. So, you know, they're just a whole group of them. And I've just been, Paulo Shevsky Kabilius has been a good friend. And then, you know, and Tracy Cross has been a good friend. So just a lot of people out there. But if I had to pick one, I guess I would go Joe with the importance of interest and enjoyment as being, and learning as being something that is, should be enjoyable. Hard to argue with any of that. And if you're an educator or, or parent kind of new to the gifted education world, you just got a list of great names to look up uh, uh, for, for more information to, to kind of build awareness and advocacy there. So speaking of that, question number three, uh, do you have a book recommendation for someone listening if they want to kind of know more? I mean, you did write the book on uh, gifted uh, mo- uh, achievement there. So so maybe we should just say yours and uh, Dr. Betsy McCoach. But uh, uh, what would you recommend uh, for uh, kind of further study for our listeners? Under achievement, I, I would recommend the, I did a little book uh, that Proofrock published, and I think Rutledge now has bought Proofrock on that. But uh, uh, the book on understanding underachievement uh, uh, kind of summarizes what I, I've shared, and I, I think that's a good start. Uh, there are a couple of books on perfectionism, I think, are really useful. 
um, uh, Jill, Jill Addison and, uh, and Bess Wilson or Hope Wilson, she goes by both. They have a book on perfectionism that I think is, is pretty good. And Miriam Adderholt Elliott did one of the early books for kids on perfectionism. I, I, I think knowing a lot about perfectionism is very helpful for parents and teachers because uh, a lot of very bright kids get caught up in that. They're, the data seems to not, the data seems to indicate that gifted kids aren't more perfectionistic than anyone else. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any proof that they're more perfectionistic, but they certainly do suffer from it. And so I think uh, uh, those couple books on perfectionism are really good. All righty. Uh, and uh, question number four, tell me about a student who maybe wasn't identified as GT, but you saw potential in, and maybe they were even able to realize that potential. Student who wasn't identified, but we saw potential. Well, ultimately the kid got identified, uh, but uh, yeah, it was a case. Uh, there was this kid out on the playground one day and he was um, a little kid. And they're just shooting baskets and he's he's running around and getting his own rebound and shooting. And uh, I thought, wow, that kid is just motivated. He's tearing it up out there, you know? And uh, I went and uh, decided to go into the council's office and find a little bit about him because I just saw this motivation there. And, uh, and come to find out he had transferred into our school system and nobody had noticed and he had actually been identified at another school. And uh, the, nobody picked up on it and we had finished our screening already. So, you know, that's a, another ticket here is you need to constantly be looking particularly with English right. learners, because as the English develops, they'll get recognized. Uh, and so if you only screen at third grade, which is what we did, uh, you know, by fifth grade, this kid might be just burning it up now, this English learner, but right. wow. you would have noted, noticed nothing at third grade. And so that was our fault. We, we, we screened at third grade and then we were done, you know, and here it was fifth grade and he'd moved in and saw the file. Went, wow, yeah. sharp kid get him in here. Yeah. So, so that just a case of, of overlooking somebody because they transferred in, but uh, noticing some other behavior out on the playground, that was a ticket to, Oh, there's something going on there. Yeah. There you go. Being clued into your kids is important in their behaviors. And uh, our last one, number five here, fill in the blank. The best way to foster students' potential is Pay attention to their interests. <laughs> Obviously, that's why I'm a broken record on that one. <laughs> well, that's excellent. And again, I think this is such an encouragement to teachers and parents out there. And I really appreciate your time. If, uh, if I'm an educator out there and I want to find out more about you and your work, how do I, how do, I do that uh, in terms of maybe social media or reaching out? How can we find out more about Dell Sigley? Uh, well, you, uh, you can actually go to the, the center here at the University of Connecticut, the Renzulli Center. And it's a pretty easy email, gifted.ucon.edu. And that's the UConn, U-C-O-N-N, not the uh, northern part of our country. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just gifted.ucon.edu. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, links to some articles on motivation under achievement there. We've got a lot of resources on the school-wide enrichment model. Uh, James Kaufman is here at, at the Renzulli Center. He's well known for his work in creativity. 
And we've got some links to a lot of James's work as well. And Catherine Little's here and some stuff on differentiation. So uh, uh, I think that'd be a great source and my emails there as well and bios on everybody. And uh, here at the center, you know, you're doing these podcasts, which is really great. We do webinars, we do free webinars during the year that people can watch. Uh, and so uh, you get a lot of good information if you go to gifted.ucon.edu. Thank you so much for your time here today. And we thank Del Sigley for uh, this conversation. We're so glad that you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association of the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at renzulilearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12 and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.